13. Welcome to week 33 of a series that has us walking through the gospel of John, a series that we are calling That You May Believe. And when last we looked two weeks ago, Jesus celebrated a Passover meal with his disciples and then in what was a powerful picture of humility and service, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Regardless of what he knew to be true of them, and he knew everything about them, he still washed their dirty feet. And when we come to John 13 through John 17, we come to a text that is so unique because the entire sweeping section of John 13 through 17 takes place on one night. It's a Thursday night of Passover week. It's the night in which our Lord met with his disciples, celebrated the Passover. Then he transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. It's the night in which Judas betrayed Jesus and Peter denied him. It's the night in which he went to the garden and he prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done. And then he was arrested and put on trial. But back to the upper room. Have you ever been in a room that was filled with tension? I mean tension so thick that you could cut, a, uh, cut it with a knife, that kind of tension. Now, some of you are thinking every time I'm with my family or my in-laws, I feel that tension that is real. And it, it's amazing, though, just how real and how thick that tension can sometimes become. And this had to be a tense moment. John 13, the upper room, the night Jesus knew he would be betrayed, and yet he looks his closest friends in the eyes and he tells them what's about to happen to him for their sake, that his body would be broken for them, his blood would be poured out for them. He told them, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me three times. He also told them that one thing would set them apart from everyone else in the world. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. One distinguishing mark of followers of Christ that will set them apart from all others in this world. And Jesus said, your love for one another. You loving one another. Listen, the world has changed a whole lot since then, since that upper room experience, but followers of Jesus are still called, at, called to stand out in that way, to love others as Christ has loved us. Will we be noticed for our love for one another? Are we being noticed for our love for one another? And this morning, we're going to see that the love of Christ for us transforms and raises the bar on the way that we are called to love one another. It raises the bar. It transforms. But think about the question, what is love? What is love? If you were to do a Google search, you would get a million different responses of what love is. And if you were to read through each one of them, you would probably end up massively confused about this thing called love. In fact, many people's definitions of love will leave us asking, what's love got to do got to do with it? I mean, like, what does love have to do with people's definition of love? But we live in a world where philosophers, musicians, poets, authors, playwrights have tried to define it for centuries. And it seems like each generation we end up further and further and further away from true love. Each generation is further away, yet 
at the core of Christianity, at the core of what we believe are the commands, love God and what? Love others. Love God. Love others. And I, I don't know about you, but there's probably not a day that goes by that I don't struggle with loving God with all of my, my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where I don't struggle in that way and then struggle to love others. Even on days where I am walking in perfect, or not perfect, but walking in close fellowship with the Lord, when things are going my way, I still oftentimes fall short in some form of loving others, whether it be loving my wife the way I'm supposed to, loving my family, my children the way I'm supposed to, loving other believers the way I'm supposed to, or loving a lost world that acts lost the way that I'm supposed to. And if I was a betting man, I would bet that there's not one person in this room that doesn't struggle in some way each day either to love God or to love someone else. I think of the words of Eugene Peterson who said, Love is the ocean in which we swim. He said, Many of us can only wade in the shallows. Others can barely dog paddle for short distances. We are learning and we see the possibility of one day taking long, relaxed, easy strokes in the deep. And I pray that this morning we would come to see that, number one, not only are we commanded by our Savior and Lord to love one another, but also we have been empowered by our Savior and Lord to love one another. Meaning, Jesus will never command us to do something that we can't do. In fact, he will call us to do things that he has done himself. So let's dive in today. If you're willing and able, I'm asking you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read John 13, verses 21 through 38 together, and then we're going to unpack these powerful, deep verses together. In verse 21, John begins this way. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, today we come before you and Lord, we want, we want to love the way you have loved us because we are commanded to love the way you have loved us. Help us to love one another with the love that you have poured upon us and into us. Lord, lead us in this time. Lord, speak, O oh God, for we need your words of life. Have your way. Speak to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So this section begins in verse 21 with, with Jesus being troubled in spirit. And think about this. Did Jesus know that Peter was going to deny him three times? Of course he did. He predicted it. Did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him? Yes, he predicted that over and over and over again. Did Jesus know that Thomas would doubt him once he had resurrected? Yes, he does, and he did. And how does he know that? Because he's omniscient. He knows all things. But here's what I pray that we see today. Even though Jesus was omniscient, he knew everything that was going to happen in Peter's life, in Judas's life, in Thomas's life, in all the disciples' life, even though he knew it all. It didn't soften the blow. Meaning on the verge of Judas betraying him and Peter denying him, it says that Jesus' heart was troubled. His heart was agitated. His heart was beating from within and just beating around, agitated in that way by what was coming. And why do I bring this up? Because oftentimes, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we don't have any problems saying, okay, Jesus is God. We, we say he is God, but sometimes we struggle with the humanity of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is God. He has never ceased to be God. But Jesus also became fully human. And because of his humanity, Hebrews 4 says that he's able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he was tempted in every possible way, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. And the one who loved his own to the very end calls us to love the way he loved us. So this morning, I want to lay before us four pictures of the love that we are called to. In fact, I would say the last point is going to show that the love we are commanded to give. The first is this, love one another with a continuing love. Love one another with a continuing love. In verse 21, it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think about the difference between the life of Jesus and the life of Judas. Both, within a 24-hour period, would die on trees. One would hang on a cross, one would swing from a branch. Their friendship, by all appearances, spanned over a three-year period. They ate together. They laughed together. They proclaimed the kingdom of God together. They cast out demons together. They battled the Pharisees together. Heaven's king, stooping down from his throne, invited Judas into the inner twelve. Night and day, Judas fellowship with his creator. And yet both died on trees. In fact, both were cursed of God. Galatians 3 tells us, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. One was betrayed, and the other one was the betrayer. What we see is this, brothers and sisters, Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity that has ever existed. He's the greatest example. We know Judas. Think about this. There's a reason that we don't name our children Judas. 
We don't even name our dogs Judas. Now, if we have a pet weasel, yes. Any cat that you have, yes, Judas, to all of them. Just name them all Judas. It's okay. They are. That's what they're, they're of the devil. That's what cats do. Don't fight it. That's who they are. But when it comes to things that are precious and good and kind, we don't say Judas. We would never do that. That's how, what Judas has become. But think about this. Life has so many difficulties, defeats, and oppositions that we all face. But one of the greatest things that we face that hurts the most, hear me, is betrayal. When we are betrayed, just imagine our trials in life like two armies standing across the battlefield. If you see the other army increasing in number, that's going to be pretty discouraging. But if you see your own people leaving your side to join their side, that's a different form of discouragement. That's a discouragement that hits deep in your heart and my heart if we see and feel betrayal in our lives. We're told in verse 26, Jesus answered, It is to, to he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. And when Jesus dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Think about the setting here. The disciples had just finished Passover. And then Jesus turned it into the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And when I say the Last Supper, some of you immediately begin to think of Leonardo da Vinci. So you think of the disciples, this painting. They're sitting on one side of the table. They're looking at the camera, of course. Or the one who's painting them, they're all leaning in towards Jesus. It's like a glamour shot. And they had their hair done beautifully. I say all that to say this. Get that thought out of your mind. That's not how it happened. That's not what it looked like at all. They weren't sitting on chairs. They were reclining in a U-shaped, or in a U-shape, excuse me, around a table. Many people believe around a U-shaped table. So they were reclining. And this was a Jewish custom. When they would eat important meals together, especially meals like Passover. So everyone reclined, literally placing their left arm on the ground, and they would eat with their right hand. Let me just show you a picture of what this could have looked like. This isn't a U-shaped table, but they're sitting in a U-shape. So this is kind of a picture of what it could have looked like. They're leaning on their left. They're eating with their right. On the right of the picture, you see three. Jesus would have been in the middle, one on the right, one on the left. So they're they're able to eat with their right hand, pass food with their right hand. And what this means is that John the disciple was on Jesus' right hand. We are told that John the disciple, whom Jesus loved, was, was reclining, was laying his head on Jesus' chest. He was close to the heart of Jesus. So he was on the right. Now, it begs another question. and I can't tell you where every disciple um, was at in this process, but the question becomes, well, where was Judas? And some people believe that Judas was as far away from Jesus as he possibly could get. Jesus, Judas was at the door, but most theologians believe this. John was on his right. Hear this. Judas was on his left. Judas was on his left. Because when Jesus says, whoever I hand this bread, I dip in morsel, and hand this to him, is the one. And he handed it to Judas. He didn't get up. He didn't pass it on. He handed it. To him, So Judas being at the left. And the picture is this. The picture is John is leaning towards the heart of Jesus. And Judas is in the process of leaning away from the heart of Jesus. And let me just say this. Jesus was the one who was the host of this 
meal. And the host had two jobs of every meal. First of all, the host was in charge of taking the bread and starting the meal. And then the host was also in charge of the seating arrangement, where people sat. Well, if you were to sit at the right or left hand of the host, it was because you were invited. So the right and left hand were places of honor. You didn't just show up and say, I'm going to be at the right of Jesus or the left of Jesus. No, he had to invite you. And I just think about this picture of Jesus approaching John and Judas and saying, Friends, would you do me the honor of being at my right and being at my left on this amazing occasion of Passover, what would become the Lord's Supper? Would you do that? And what I see in this, don't miss this, is this is Jesus in a continuing love, extending love to one who he knew would betray him. And yet he's still saying, Judas, I know what you're going to do, but I still honor you. In fact, even serving him was a thing of honor. He's still honoring him. He's still serving him. He's still washing his feet. It's a love that keeps going and going and going. But yet you see John leaning in towards Jesus and Judas on his way out, leaning away. Which begs the question, today, this very day, which way are you leaning? Are you leaning right now into the heart of Jesus? Do you, do you hear his heart today beating for you? Are you leaning away from his heart? You know, this is a great warning sign. Judas is a great warning sign to all of us. Because the other disciples didn't immediately know that Jesus was talking about Judas. It wasn't that Judas was the black sheep and the mistreated one. It's not like every time Jesus said, one of you is a devil, and they say, it must be Judas because Jesus mistreats him a lot. No, they didn't have a clue who it was. And so the picture for us is this. Judas looked the part. He talked the part. He played the part of what a follower of Christ was supposed to look like. And it's a, it's a testimony to the deceitfulness of our own sin that we are able to fool others. But hear this. We can't fool Jesus. And he's the only one that matters. We can't fool him. We might be able to fool others. We can't fool him. And this section ends, look at verse 30. This section ends with Judas going out, and then it says this, and it was night. What John is telling us is this. He's not just saying it's nighttime. He's saying it has forever become night for Judas. Judas will never experience another daylight. The day is gone. The night has come for him. Eternal night has fallen upon Judas. And let me just lay it out here before all of us. To leave the presence of Jesus is never to walk into the light. To leave the presence of Jesus is always to walk into the darkness. You never leave Jesus and have light shine upon you. No, when you leave Jesus, you walk in darkness. You shut him out. You're moving towards darkness. And it was night. We are to love one another with a continuing love, as Jesus loved Judas. But then secondly, we are to love one another with a costly love. With a costly love. Look at verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him at once. And what we know is that Jesus loved with a sacrificial love. He loved with a costly love. Jesus was about to be betrayed, denied. He was about to be tried and convicted. He was about to suffer and die in shame. 
but you wouldn't know it from what he's saying. He's got glory on his mind, which is incredible to think about. It would have been wonderful if a few years earlier, at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer and came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended and God the Father echoed from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It would have been amazing in that moment if Jesus had said, now is the Son of Man glorified. But he didn't. It would have been wonderful if at the transfiguration of Christ, when Jesus radiated the glory of God from within him to his inner circle disciples and Moses and Elijah come, they talk about Jesus' departure. And once again, God the Father says, this is my beloved son, hear him. It would have been wonderful if in that moment Jesus would have said, now is the Son of Man glorified. But he didn't. It's only here in John 13 before the deep shame and humiliation of the cross as Jesus stands on the brink of false accusations, of lying witnesses, of horrible insults that are poured upon him uh, right before mockery and beating and shame surrounded by evil people in the midst of an agonizing death. And Jesus says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now. Yet what in the world is so glorious about a cross? Nobody who ever witnessed a crucifixion would describe it as anything but gross, terrible, and horrifying. But hidden in the horror of Christ's bloody and gory cross was glory. For through the cross, Satan and sin and death are defeated. Through the cross, our punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve was poured instead upon him. Through the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And brothers and sisters, that is still today glorious. That is glorious. So the cross is the glory of Christ because it was always his mission to die for the sins of the world. And love is costly. Love is sacrificial. And oftentimes we struggle to love that way. We struggle to love sacrificially because our pride tells us people are taking advantage of us or withhold it. Don't give it in that way. And C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves describes the vulnerable nature of love for us this way. Hear this and ask yourself, has your heart become this? He says, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change it will not be broken instead it will become unbreakable impenetrable irredeemable listen love is costly it'll break your heart to love others but it's better than the alternative of having your heart become hardened to the things that god cares about oh that we would understand the costly love by which we have been loved by our savior to love one another with a costly love. Number three, love one another with a committed love. 
with a committed love. Now I want to jump to verse 36 in this picture of Peter. So Jesus tells his disciples, I'm leaving. He's headed to the cross. Well, Peter, and of course, it's always Peter. Peter always has something to say. And Peter says, well, Jesus, where are you going? I mean, it's kind of a good question, right? Jesus says, I'm going somewhere. You can't come with me. Well, where are you going? And Jesus tells Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Meaning, it's Jesus and Jesus alone that has to carry this burden. Yes, he had called his disciples to follow him in humble service. He says, I, as I have served you, serve others. He's called his disciples to love the way he has loved others. But no disciple could follow Jesus now in the path of laying down his life for sinners. This was not a road that any of them could travel. None of them could lay down their life for the sins of the world. Yes, Peter would give his life for Jesus. In fact, 10 of the 11 remaining disciples would give their life in brutal fashion for their faith in Jesus Christ. But not one of them would die a death for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. So when Jesus says, I'm going away and you cannot follow me, what he's saying is you can't die the death I'm about to die. You can't die for the sins of the world because you aren't the sinless sacrifice I am. But then Peter said, and of course Peter, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus looks back at Peter and says the hard things. Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? Like, really, Peter? Really, Peter? You're going to lay down your life for me, Pete? Really? And Peter's like, yes, absolutely. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In this moment, Peter thinks way too much of his ability to follow Jesus on his own. And what Peter had to, to get to the point of is realizing, I can do nothing apart from him. In fact, two chapters later in John 15, Jesus would say that, apart from me, you can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, how many times do you fail? And I'm saying this, how many times do I fail because I walk in my self-sufficiency and think I can serve the Lord in my own strength, my own wisdom, my own power, and I ruin it. And I fall flat on my face because I haven't yet learned the lesson that apart from him, I can do nothing. But here's the beautiful thing. Don't miss this. Jesus was not shocked by Peter's failure. And he's not shocked by our failure. He's not shocked by our failure. But here's where I want to focus. Jesus is committed here to Peter and the other ten disciples. He knew that Peter would deny him. He knew the other disciples would flee from him when he was arrested. Yet, he loved them to the very end. And he was ready to restore them after his resurrection. Do we have a love that's committed like that? Do we have a love that continues in spite of betrayal, denial, desertion? Do we have a love like that? And let me just say this, and I, I, you need to hear this, and especially teenagers, you need to hear this right now. We live in a world that has a terrible problem with love, a terrible problem with love, meaning the standard definition of, of love in our world today is this. If you love somebody, you can never say anything that would be upsetting to them or offensive to them. If you love somebody, it means you have to affirm and approve anything they think, they do with their bodies, or going to do or choose to do. In our world, the world tells you this. You cannot tell anybody you're wrong, but I still love you. Because in our world, that is so wrong and so hateful and so mean. 
follow with me here to tell someone you are wrong, you are in danger, you're in the process of destroying your life both now and forever. Our world says you're so prideful and you are so hateful. Our world in which we live, to love someone is to give them unqualified, unconditional approval and say anything you do, anything you think is okay. Please hear this. Jesus never did that. Jesus never did that. I hear people all the time say, you're so hateful. My Jesus would never do that. I'm thinking to myself, well, your Jesus isn't this. It's like, have you ever read the Bible? Do you hear what Jesus said? Think about the things that Jesus said. In John 3, 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will never see or enter the kingdom of heaven, ever. Later on in that chapter, Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And we think that is so loving and so amazing. Thank you, Jesus. But then Jesus keeps going and he ruins it because he says, whoever does not obey the son of of man or the son shall not see life and the wrath of God will remain on them. Well, that's not very loving. Later on in John 8, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the question becomes, why did Jesus say so many mean and hateful things to people? Let me tell you why. Because he loved them. Because he loved them. Love doesn't mean I don't tell you the truth. Love means I say you're wrong and yet I still love you. I still, you're wrong and I love you. You're wrong. If you follow the ways of the world, you're wrong, but I still love you. And think about this. What makes Jesus' love so good, even in spite of saying you're wrong, is that Jesus' love is committed to our greatest good, and our greatest good can only be found in him. So what is the committed love for us? Is We love people even in spite of how they treat us, and we love them by wanting their greatest good, and their greatest good can only be found in Jesus who is truth. Therefore, we will continue to speak the truth in love even when it's not popular. But notice I said in love. It's not just enough to go, I speak the truth. Well, sometimes you speak the truth and you're a jerk. So let's stop that. And instead, let's speak the truth and let's do it in love, right? I mean, I hear people all the time say, well, people don't like me because I'm just a Christian. No, they don't like you because you're mean and nasty. That's why they don't like you. Try doing it a different way and loving people. And yes, they still might not like you, but you can say they don't like me because I love them as Christ loved them. Let's do it like that. Amen. Which leads us to the last and final point. And that was not in my notes anywhere. That doesn't cost you anything extra, but take it and walk in it for a while. Last point is this. We love one another, which is a commanded love. It's commanded love, which is kind of the point. We come back to verses 34 and 35, and Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, meaning this isn't a suggestion for some Christians. This is a commandment for all Christians. And Jesus says that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love or have love for one another. And when you hear Jesus say, This is a new commandment. You go, hang on a second. Like, how is that a new commandment? I've heard that before. Like, even Leviticus chapter 4, or excuse me, like chapter 19, we hear the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus uses the word, a new commandment, the word new there literally means renewed or refreshed. What it means is that Jesus is taking a commandment that they knew very well, and he's raising the bar. And he's saying, you know how to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm telling you to love your neighbor as I have loved you. 
know, we love our neighbor as ourselves, meaning there's a point by which we, just, we cut ties and walk away. But Jesus says, love your neighbor as I have loved you. Jesus raises the bar on love. So what does it mean to love like Jesus loved? Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, we love by forgiving others the way Christ has forgiven us. We forgive others. We love by serving one another in humility in the same way Christ served by washing feet. We love by generously giving of ourselves to those in need. We love by patiently bearing with one another in their mistakes and in their immaturity. We love by deferring to one another in humility, and we don't seek our own well-being, but we seek the interest of others. We love by speaking the truth in love, even when our world says, you're hateful, and that's not love at all. We speak truth because that's the most loving thing we can do. The most hateful thing you can do is keep your mouth shut or approve people who are going to hell. Most hateful thing you can do. Most loving thing we can do is say, but Jesus says, the word of God says, we love by refusing to isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, and we love by finding a place of encouragement and to be encouragers in community. We love by always being willing to suffer inconveniences and even interruptions for the sake of what God is doing in the lives of other people. We love by striving at all times to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We love by praying for one another, bearing with one another's weaknesses, all of the one another verses, living those out. And we love each other by laboring to see and being committed to the good of each and every individual that can only be found in Christ. And let me end this way. Jesus ended with, with these words in verse 35. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me lay this out here this morning. Do people know do people know that we are Jesus' disciples by the way that we love one another? And it's easy. It's so easy to frame that question up by going, well, all these Christians around me, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And they don't love anyone at all. And I've seen the way they act. And they're, they're just hypocrites and all these things. Yet the way that we need to frame the question is not by saying, does everyone else around me love? The way to frame this question is this. Do people know that I am a disciple of Jesus by the way I love one another? another instead of looking at the speck in someone's eye start with the plank in your own do people know that i'm a disciple by the way i love one another listen we want to dodge that question but we need to begin with that question how are we doing at loving one another and before you throw your hands up and go well that's just impossible to love people like jesus loved us let me say this you're right you're right it is impossible but then Jesus will never ask us to do anything that we can't do, that he won't empower us to do. In fact, look at, on the screen, Romans 5, 5, it says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, meaning you will never run out of love for others because anytime you begin to empty, the Holy Spirit will fill your life, your heart with his love. Also meaning, hear this, there should never be anyone in your circle who's not being loved. There should never be anyone in your circle of influence who is starved for love. There should never be anyone in this community of faith who's starved for love. 
Why? Because we are called to love one another. Here's how I want to end this time today. Have, have you experienced his love and salvation? Have you really, truly experienced the love of Christ in salvation? Have you understood your sin before a holy God? Have you cried out to God to save you from your sin, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, trusting what Jesus did on the cross for you? Have you done that? And also, are you experiencing the love of Christ? Are you leaning right now against the heart of Jesus, or are you leaning away from him? Are you experiencing his love now? Are you extending his love to others? We need to ask God to help us to love this lost and dying world. And we need to stop being shocked when they act like lost and dying people. Listen, sinful people are going to act sinful. What we need to do is we need to show them the love of Christ. And they will know that we're Christ's disciples by our love for one another. Oh, may that happen among us. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to ask the band to come forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray in this moment. Father, we just come before you and Lord, we pray for anyone today that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand what it means to truly be loved by you. We sang earlier, we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. And the reality is the only reason we're able to say that we love you is because you first loved us. Thank you for loving us first. And I pray for anyone here or watching online that has never come to a place of saving faith, of turning from their sin, turning from trusting themselves, turning to you, Jesus, alone as their Savior and Lord, that today would be a day of salvation. But I also pray for brothers and sisters in this room and listening online that we would ask ourselves the question, are we leaning into the heart of Jesus today or are we leaning away? Are we walking closer and closer to the darkness because we're leaving the light? Are we in a place that we're loving others the way Jesus has loved us? Or, or are we, as C.S. Lewis said, withholding our love from everything, and yet our hearts aren't being broken, but they're becoming hardened. They're becoming selfish. They're becoming consumed by us and not consumed by you. Jesus, teach us what it means to love as you have loved us. Show us, Holy Spirit, pour your love in our hearts and may no one around us be starved for the love that you have placed within us. Finish this time. In Jesus' name.